0: Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia On Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Ramai Santrupala and I'm a Royal College of Anesthetists council member and a consultant anesthetist at Guys and Symptomages NHS Foundation Trust. In this, the first of a series of podcasts with the Association of Anesthetists, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host Rupert McCrossan. Ru, I'll hand over to you to let you introduce yourself.
1: Thanks, Ramai. Um, so My name is Rue McCrossin and I'm the immediate past chair of the Association of anaesthetists trainee committee and I'm a consultant anaesthetist at South Tees Hospitals NHS Trust.
0: Thanks Rue. Today we're joined by Professor Michael West, someone who's really challenging to introduce in just one sentence and many of us will know him for his internationally acclaimed expertise in leadership and well-being within healthcare. He's a senior fellow at the King's Fund and a professor of work and organizational psychology at Lancaster University. Michael, we're humbled and it's a real privilege to have you join us today. Perhaps we can start with a brief walk through your own leadership journey.
2: Well, thank you, Ramai and Rupert, and it's a real pleasure pleasure to have a conversation with you. I suppose my leadership journey began when I finished my PhD on the psychology of meditation many decades ago, and uh, I didn't have any money at the end of my educational life, and uh, I was at university in University of Wales, and I took a job as a labourer in a coal mine in South Wales for a year, Oakdale Colliery, then the largest colliery in South Wales, and. I was pretty frightened at first and then fascinated by it all and and then only too pleased to leave the coal mine and get back to academia but what i learned was that safety was everyone's responsibility underground and it was the teams that you worked in that made all of the difference to safety and and then i began to work as a researcher working for the medical research council initially and learning about team working and trying my hand at leadership. And I think I failed quite badly. I think I was a really poor leader initially. I was so focused on achieving outcomes and not very good at taking account of the needs of the people i worked with. And then I think over time, both from studying research um, findings around leadership and culture, and also working with some really good, inspiring leaders who were committed to some of the principles of creating workplaces where people can thrive. I think I slowly, painfully learned much, much more about leadership and how profoundly important it is for the cultures of our organisations and therefore for our ability to deliver high quality, compassionate care for the people we serve.
0: That's a great journey. Um, It's interesting that you mentioned that. So the focus of today's podcast is very much on compassionate leadership and also supporting workforce wellbeing. I'll hand over to Rue to start the interview.
1: So I was wondering, Michael, if you could tell us a bit about why you think compassion is so important in healthcare?
2: Well, there's the obvious answer in one way, Rue, that, you know, I'm- Healthcare is about providing high quality compassionate care for patients and then actually what patients want is clinicians who listen who understand Mm -hmm. who empathize and who help and those are the key elements of compassion but there's something much deeper than that compassion is one of the core if you like at the seat of one of the core emotion of the three emotional regulation systems we have as human beings we have a an emotional regulation system focused on threat Um, One focused on drive, achieving what we want to achieve in terms of acquiring resources, for example, and one focused on nurturing and compassion's at the core of that. And compassion's therefore hardwired into us by evolution because it's that behaviour of helping others, particularly those in distress or in pain, which enables us to bind together in family groups, in social groups, in communities, to create that sense of connection and belonging. compassion's about blurring the boundaries between self and other. And, and that feeling of belonging that compassion creates is profoundly important. We're more likely to die from social isolation, loneliness, than we are from the effects of smoking or excessive alcoholism, alcohol drinking or um, from obesity. And so compassion's at the core of what it is to be human and to be connected with others. And in healthcare, it's particularly important. We know that if you look across the board, that compassion is probably the most important, powerful intervention there is in healthcare. Yet we don't often really emphasize that in professional training, in cultures of our organizations. So compassion is at, is at the core of healthcare. It's at the core of what it is to be human. And it must be at the core of leadership if we're to create cultures of high quality compassionate care.
1: That's that's absolutely astounding about what you said about the effects of um, effects on health for people of compassion. I mean, that's a, that's a huge important topic that we we need to get out there. Really, I think our focus is very much just on the medical side of things, but it sounds like compassion is such an important part of our work. It's something that we need to sort of promote amongst doctors and amongst healthcare leaders.
2: Yeah, if you look at, I mean, I remember one randomised controlled trial, large randomised controlled trial of anaesthetists visiting patients prior to surgery. And one arm of the trial involved anaesthetists doing a normal visit and providing sedatives. And then the other they visited without sedatives, but were asked to be extra compassionate in their interactions. Well, the compassion arm of the intervention was associated with a dramatically lower requirement, 56 percent lower requirement for painkillers post surgically and a significantly shorter length of hospital stay for those those patients. And we see similar large effects of compassion in the treatment of long-term disorders like diabetes, HIV, of therapist compassion in the treatment of mental health problems. But in relation to well-being, what's important as well is we know from randomised control trials with GPs, with nurses, that where they're asked to be extra compassionate in their interactions with patients over a two week period, that's associated with significant improvements in their own mental health, lower levels of anxiety, stress and depression. So um, and and the effect sizes are truly remarkable. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, greater than the effects of aspirin commonly used in the early treatment of heart attacks and of statins in the five-year risk of a cardiovascular event. So compassion is fundamental in healthcare.
0: That segues nicely into um, looking at compassion and what that particularly means for clinical leaders within the NHS, Um, that's, you know, really some fundamental data that really supports structuring into a compassionate leadership model. But what does compassion and inclusive leadership really look within the NHS? And, you know, what can we advise clinical leaders that are listening
2: today? So, you know, when we, I guess, when we address the question, how do we create the conditions within our organisations and our teams where people will behave with compassion towards patients and service users, with compassion towards each other, and behave self-compassionately. Well, that's about the culture of the organisation. And of course, every interaction by every one of us every day is an opportunity to shape the culture of our teams, our organisations. But we know from the last 100 years of research and organisational culture, that the role of leaders is particularly powerful. What they pay attention to, what they model in their behaviour tells us what it is they value. So. Compassion must be incorporated as, if you like, the core value in leadership behaviour. And in practice, what it means is those four things. Leaders being present with those they lead. Nancy Klein talks about listening with fascination. Leaders who, who, you know, first give their attention to those they lead by being present. Second, who seek to understand the challenges that those they lead face. And my goodness, the challenges of staff across health services um, are enormous. And the, the major challenge for um, most nations in the world in healthcare care is workforce issue. And the third is empathising with those we lead who are under enormous pressure, very high levels of stress and increasing all of the time. And that's not sustainable. And the fourth is then helping those we lead. And that means Helping by removing obstacles that get in the way of them doing their work and helping to ensure they've got the resources they need, the right staff numbers with the right skills, the right equipment and so on. And those four behaviours we know are critical to effective leadership. We've known that for 60 or 70 years. So in practice, compassionate leadership is the most important skill of leaders, which is listening. And the most important task is helping those we lead to do their jobs more effectively by helping to remove obstacles and ensure they have the resources. Understanding the challenges that people face is achieved through dialogue, not some hierarchical imposition of understanding. And empathy is at the core of effective leadership, emotional intelligence. So empathising with those they lead who are under so much pressure and experiencing so many difficulties And empathizing is about feeling with and not being overwhelmed by those feelings and making it our own drama and that empathy gives us the motivation then for that fourth element of compassion which is helping or serving the other
0: i'm just um taking that in those four pillars are really fundamental actually i think particularly in the last couple of years we've obviously seen a very pivotal with the pandemic within healthcare. What practical steps can clinical leaders take to remove those barriers and actually really implement four aspects that you've mentioned?
2: Well, the the practice of those four behaviours is not in itself difficult. It, you know, it's not some fancy model of leadership learning fancy new skills. It's being present with each other as as the, the three of us are present with each other in this moment. It's being present with each other. Connecting, listening, and then seeking to understand the challenges that those we lead face by talking with them. You know, what are the biggest difficulties? Empathising with them. You know, when I've talked to um, doctors and anaesthetists as part of the inquiry that I had the privilege of co-chairing with wonderful Dame Denise Coyer on behalf of the GMC, we heard so many harrowing accounts of the work-life experiences of doctors and leadership is about engaging with that and feeling that pain and the levels of stress in the NHS amongst doctors, nurses, AHPs are unsustainably high and that empathy is necessary for us then to really ask the question about how we can help. And I think one of the problems we face is that leaders are often reluctant to do that because they're afraid they won't have the solutions. Let's take work, work overload. Chronic work overload is the number one factor in staff stress. It's the number one reason why staff quit and intend to quit. It's highly related to patient dissatisfaction. And it's the number one inhibitor of quality improvement. Yet, we find that people treat it as like the wallpaper, the pattern on the wallpaper that we no longer see. Because I think leaders are afraid that if they start talking about workload, they'll have to to come up with solutions. But it's not the role of leaders to have solutions necessarily. It is the role of leaders in organisations to bring our collective attention to bear on the most difficult problems we face. I think the other point that's really important to make is that the the st- staff stress intention to quit actual quitting burnout is beyond yoga and beyond mindfulness apps you know i'm not st- wanting to denigrate those sorts of interventions you know i was I-, I told you that i've practiced meditation most of my adult life it's really important to me but the problem is not mindfulness and yoga in our organisations, it's that we're failing to meet the core work needs of our staff. And those three core work needs are the need for autonomy and control, the need for a feeling of belonging, and the need for competence or contribution. And unless we address those three core work needs, then we're not going to ensure the well-being of staff and that we retain them. because. It is the failure to meet those core needs, all three of them that cause staff stress and cause staff to quit.
1: And so we talked about the three core needs of autonomy, belonging and competence. How do we put those into practice in the workplace?
2: So in the inquiries that I had a privilege of being part of, we identified uh, eight areas where change was necessary. The first in relation to autonomy and control was voice and influence people feel they have control when their voices are heard. And so we need to ensure that all of our staff staff have opportunities for their voices to be heard rather than feeling like cogs in a system or resources that are just applied as it were in some impersonal way. you know for example, Nottingham University Hospitals has 90odd nurse councils who have time and space to meet regularly to voice their concerns. Northumbria, NHS uh, Trust has committed to ensuring that patient experience and staff experience guide their strategy as a trust, and they have dramatically lower stress levels. The the second aspect of autonomy and control is the need for cultures of justice and fairness, and we heard continually from doctors that they felt they worked in cultures of fear and blame, which undermines or corrodes a sense of control. Uh, Mersey Care has introduced a restorative culture in its organisation. They've eliminated over 90% of suspensions and over 80% of disciplinaries in their organisation because they're focused on learning from difficulties. And and it's also autonomy and control is also about the working conditions we have. Have we got proper spaces for people to rest? Do they have access to nutritious food on night shifts? Do we give people influence over their work schedules and rotors as opposed to just directing them? And and when they have influence over work schedules, then they're more able to balance the needs of home and work life. And we see lots of places that are beginning to Mm -hmm. introduce self-rostering and e-rostering. And belonging, the two areas there are team working, which is fundamental. Team working is so powerfully protective. When doctors are part of uh, relatively stable teams, their stress levels are 50% lower. They're dramatically less likely to be intending to quit. And the more people in an NHS trust that work in teams with clear objectives and that meet regularly, the better the care quality, The better the patient satisfaction, the better the financial performance, the better the staff retention and dramatically lower levels of avoidable patient mortality, and it's about creating cultures of compassion. Berkshire Health has retrained over half of its staff in compassionate leadership now with amazing outcomes in terms of staff engagement. Over 70% of staff report being fully engaged. Health Education and Improvement Wales have a ten-year strategy for developing compassionate leadership across the whole of health and social care in Wales. Foundation doctors in the Northwest are being trained in compassionate leadership. So lots of examples of where this Mm. is being done. Third area is competence or contribution. And as I said, Mm. workload is the key factor undermining that, um, along with the need to address supportive, helpful supervision for staff and the need for continuing growth education and development and and in relation to workload of course it's about getting enough staff because that's the key factor and we have to address that issue continually and i think the issue of chronic work overload should be addressed in every executive team meeting every royal college meeting every appraisal meeting every team meeting every departmental meeting because It is the key issue. East London Foundation Trust regularly asks its staff what activities they would reduce or get rid of. They've eliminated 85% of clinical audit activities in the context of their outstanding quality improvement culture. Um, We know that improved multidisciplinary team working helps to reduce workload using new technologies. And and I think in the future we have to work much more closely with communities to uh, develop models of preventative health care and social prescribing and engaging the 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 uh, energies and skills of the community in helping to take care of health. The point I want to make is that all these three needs and those sorts of interventions are necessary if we're going to deal with the problems of health and well-being amongst healthcare staff. It's great also to have yoga and mindfulness <laughs> and all of these other things but that's treating the symptoms, it's not treating the underlying causes.
1: Well, that's a fantastic to give us so many tangible examples of things that other trusts have done that are actually working on the ground. So there is, you know, that we can move forward with this, can't we? Um, I wanted to touch on something you said when you were talking about autonomy and um, about team working and how that's very important within working within a team. Um, what do you think about how we train our junior doctors and the way we rotate them so often? Because I. I feel like I've just become gone from being a trainee to a consultant and I often felt that I didn't really feel part of that team because you're the way we work we're in with a different group of people um every day because we might be in a different theatre we then have the you know all the different shifts you're constantly with lots and lots of different staff and then after six months you're simply just moved on to the next unit is there anything you think we can do to improve that because the reason we do it is to get through all the different things in our curriculums because there isn't everything in every hospital so how do you think we could balance that
2: so imagine imagine if you will you know your experience as a trainee and those three core needs I talked about do you have voice and influence and control no Mm. do you have a sense of belonging no do you have a sense of competence and contribution often no because you're holding two bleeps, you don't have a registrar or a consultant available and you've got five or six patients to deal with. That just undermines a sense of confidence and control. So it's almost like we we take the principles of human growth and well-being and say, how can we design a work experience at the very beginning of someone's career, which does exactly the opposite? Mm -hmm. And we know that those first years in a career, are key to shaping the future. So we have to really radically transform the way that we provide training. You know, one of the really sad things, Rue, is that in 17 out of 18 studies of students, in medical students in training, compassion declined. That's a a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So um, the recommendations we made in our independent report for the GMC were about how we increase the, the voice and influence of trainees and give them more of a sense of control, for example, over rotors. You know, we talked to trainees who, who were trying to get day off their wedding six months in advance, and one trainee who just left because in the end she couldn't get the day off. And we had many other examples of those. Belonging is conferred primarily by the teams we're a part of. And when you bounce people from one team to another, you just corrode that sense of belonging and increase the sense of isolation so we recommended that every trainee should have a home team that you know even though they may be moving between other teams they regularly meet with their home team Um, and that might be you know a group of trainees and supervisors that meet every fortnight to share experiences to provide social social support to discuss quality improvement projects to um deal with some of the talk about some of the challenges that people face. We have to build that in as a way of working. Mm-hmm. In fact, all professionals working in healthcare should have a home team that they're part of that meet regu- meets regularly. Because that's not only important for their well-being, it's important also for the quality of care that we provide. We know that those sorts of teams are associated with much better quality of care, fewer errors, um, less avoidable patient mortality. And, it, and it's also about ensuring that we provide sufficient support for trainees. So having supervision that is supportive, enabling and creates a sense of psychological safety for trainees so that, you know, what we know about challenge is that um, challenge is a good thing. We grow through challenge being stretched, but only when we feel we have adequate support. If you chuck people into a situation where they feel out of their depth and and terrified, you're creating precisely the opposite conditions for learning and and growth. So we have to take account of the reality of what it is to be human, to support um, trainees in the future. And, And I know the GMC was very influenced by the findings of the inquiry, which is um, called caring for doctors, Mm -hmm. caring for patients, and there is work going on to try to transform um, uh, workplaces for trainees. And As I said, one example is the um, Compassionate Leadership Programme for Foundation Doctors in the Northwest, but in many other places, there are initiatives to create better working conditions. I think the core is creating those home teams.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I'm absolutely blown away by some of the very practical examples that you've given and also the really strong evidence behind this. One aspect that has always interested me personally, but I also think is fundamental to healthcare is something that you mentioned, the concept of psychological safety. So how do we create these cultures and these environments where we can actually have you know, quite open and sometimes difficult conversations? And that's you know, whether you're at the start of your career or whether you're a senior leader.
2: So, you know, psychological safety, we, we kind of all know what it means. You know, am, am I in a room where I feel that people are going to um, not going to ridicule you, ridicule me, not going to be aggressive with me? On the contrary, they're going to be interested in me. They're going to care for me. They're going to support me. Um, and compassionate leadership and compassion from colleagues is key to that. It's, it, it is those four behaviours that we we're present with each other you know we connect with each other we and we listen deeply to each other and we seek to understand you know i may disagree with what you're saying rue and but i'm i want to understand in order that i can understand the basis of, of the difference of opinion and then to empathize to feel with each other and then to ask always to have this orientation of how can i help and we know that psychological safety I think, is created when we've got compassionate leadership, the basics of good team working, shared goals, meeting regularly together. Along with a shared vision, what we're here for is high quality, continually improving, compassionate care, where we're clear about that, where there are, and, and where there are four or five clear goals that we share in our work um, aligned to that vision where there's a where there's a a culture in our teams of reflection and learning, taking the time to reflect. How did that how did that shift go? What can we learn? What went well? What didn't go? Well, what can we learn from this rather than cultures of fear and blame and ridicule? And, And third is we have to have we have to have frequent contact with each other in order to build a sense of trust. So we need, to, we need to meet regularly. We need to be together regularly where we can have that time for reflection. And the fourth is we have to value difference. The nature of human society and human community is diversity. We're all different, you know, and biodiversity is all different. Planetary systems is diversity. The nature of our universe is diverse, and we must embrace that diversity in multi-professional teams, made up of people from different professional backgrounds in teams that are diverse in terms of demographic characteristics, ethnicity, sexuality, age, whatever. We know that that diversity is associated with greater innovation and productivity because we've got a a greater diversity of knowledge and skills and abilities to draw on. And, And also that means that we also have to have healthy approaches to managing conflict. Chronic interpersonal conflicts, nastiness, backbiting is a disaster for psychological safety. So we must be, you know, professionalism is about never tolerating people manifesting that kind of relationship in the workplace. Other sorts of conflicts, disagreements about what we should do or how we should do it, we should lean into in a positive, transparent, ethical, compassionate way. Because Exploring the diversity of opinions and approaches is what enables us to innovate, to be more effective, to be more creative, and as a result, to create a sense of psychological safety. And then finally, it comes from us all committing to being compassionate with each other, having a a set of ground rules about how we behave, not backbiting, not being nasty, but being supportive, empathic and helping and and modelling humility which we know is a key characteristic of great leaders. So when we create those conditions, and there are many teams that are successful in creating those conditions, we create the psychological safety that enables people to thrive, but it is also the kind of perfect seedbed for quality improvement and innovation. And if we're not improving quality and innovating in our practice, then it's going backwards.
1: That's great. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. Honestly, I could just talk to you about this all day. It just sounds like there's so many um, just small things that every individual can do that will make a difference. And when we do each of those things as individuals, the whole suddenly becomes greater and that we can all move forward. So it's really absolutely fantastic to hear from you. Um, I think we are probably kept running out of time, unfortunately, um, but I thank you so much for talking to us today. But I wanted to ask you just before we go, If there was just three things that you three messages, maybe that you could give to our listeners about things that they can personally do and take back to their department, what would those three things be like three core behaviours? maybe.
2: So the first is to be self-compassionate because our relationship with ourselves is the most important relationship there in a way that there is. It's the longest relationship Mm. in our lives. And it's the basis of our relationship with others. And when we have the courage to be self-aware and to pick up on when I'm feeling overwhelmed, ashamed, inadequate, angry, irritated, hurt, then we can accept those feelings rather than deny them or repress them or push them away. And we can inquire into them. Why am I feeling like this? And then to bring a loving, caring attitude towards ourselves, after all, Each of us is as deserving of love as every other human being on the planet. And what that enables us to do is to clear away some of the flotsam and jetsam of our feelings with ourselves in our daily lives that get in the way of our ability to connect with others. When I feel ashamed, threatened, angry, irritated, it creates a block in my ability to be present authentically, courageously, deeply with others. So that's number one. Number two is practice being present with others, whether it's patients, service users, carers, colleagues, practice being present with others, just being in the here and now. And it's not something you have to work at in a way. It's something it's about relaxing back into being present with the other person and giving our attention and that connect that connection is profoundly beneficial for them. It gives them a sense of belonging, and I talked earlier about how important that is in terms of health, but it's also nourishing for us. We feel better as a result of, of that connection. So practice being present as the ba- and listening deeply as the basis for compassionate interactions, and that's something we can practice in every interaction in our days. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just practice when you remember, and it becomes a way of being. And third is, I think, recognize that we are most effective in delivering for the people we serve when we work as real teams with shared goals and where we meet regularly to review what it is we're trying to achieve and how we're going about it. We have so much evidence that That way of connecting and working together that we've practiced as a species for hundreds of thousands of years is at the core of our ability to deliver for patients. So the third is to make sure that we are working to nurture, nurture real team working and positive, healthy, supportive, compassionate team working in our organisations.
1: That's brilliant. That's an absolutely fantastic note to end on. And thank you so much, Michael, for your time today. Thank you.
2: It's yeah. been a pleasure I, the a
0: I could talk to you all day, Michael. Thank you so much.
2: The feeling's mutual. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for listening to Anesthesia On Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. If there is a topic you'd like us to cover, or you'd like to feature in the podcast, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our program of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anesthetists.